If you get to heaven, who else do you expect to see there? What surprises will you get? Who'll be there and who'll be missing? I suppose that's a bad question, isn't it? Because you don't know, otherwise it wouldn't be a surprise. But we'll all get some big surprises both ways. People missing, we expected to be there. People there, we never expected to get in. Why do you think you'll be there? Can you give an answer to that in your head now? Why do you think you'll be there if you do? Now we're told both how to know that we'll be there and that we'll get some big surprises about who is there in Luke chapter 18 verses 9 to 14. Let's turn to that now, Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 to 14. So the page numbers are on the back of the pink sheet and some notes showing you where we're going with this. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. We've for quite a while been doing a series through Genesis chapters 1 to 4. We've finished that series now, uh, not intending to go on from into chapter 5. And we're returning to Luke. Uh, I don't know if people remember that we have been working through Luke in stages. But it was quite a while ago we were last in it, so I won't be too discouraged if you've forgotten. Back in 2017, we got up to chapter 18, verse 8. And so we're just picking up from where we left off a couple of years ago. And the theme of Luke's Gospel, well, Luke has many themes, but probably the biggest is Jesus as Saviour. Who is he Saviour of? Well, we're told in what could be called the theme verse of Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 10. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save what was lost. That could be said to be the theme of Luke's Gospel. Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save what was lost. What was lost? Who are these lost people? Well, we're told through pairs of people that keep on coming up in Luke. You keep on getting told pairs of people. So, for example, Jesus told about two sons in a story. Uh, Luke tells us about two criminals crucified either side of Jesus. And here in chapter 18, we have two people praying in the temple. And in each case, and there are other examples in Luke of these pairs, in each case, one person admits his lostness and the other doesn't. And in each case, we are being prompted to ask ourselves, which one in this pair am I like? So this morning we're going to consider this pair of people praying in the temple, Luke 18 verses 9 to 14. And as we do, remember the aim is for you to ask yourself, which one are you like? So first of all, are you like the Pharisee? Now it was an ordinary day in the Jewish temple, that magnificent building with its pillars and arches and its gold and tapestries and its incense and sacrifices, must have been an amazing place. And there's a man who's quite at home there. He's a Pharisee. That means he's a member of the most strict and enthusiastic religious group in Judaism. And he's standing in his flowing robes and with his prayer shawl around his shoulders and probably little boxes strapped to his wrist and his forehead with parts of the Bible in. He looks really religious. And he's praying aloud. Verse 11. Luke 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, 
or even like this tax collector. What's he doing? Well, it says he's praying, but he's not really. What he's really doing is this. He's looking down on others. He's probably looking up because they prayed with their hands up and looking up. But although that's his posture, looking up, his attitude is looking down on other people. He starts by saying God, but that's the only mention God gets because the prayer is all about him, himself, taken up with himself and how he's better than other people. He says he's thanking God, but it doesn't really sound like it. It sounds like, rather, he's pleased with himself, that he's not like those people. And Jesus is telling this story to warn against exactly that attitude. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable, this story with a meaning. It's to warn against exactly that attitude. So, simple question for you. Are there people you look down on? Are there people you feel superior to? Be honest with yourself. It might be people you see around town. Oh, I'm glad I'm not that sort of person. It might be people that you come across on social media. It might be people at church. Oh, I'm glad I'm not one of those less reliable people. Those don't turn up very often people. Those less well-taught people haven't got my understanding. Or maybe quite the opposite, those uptight legalistic people. Are there people you feel superior to? Well, if so, verse 9 says Jesus is telling this story to you. It's told to people who look down on others. The Pharisee is looking down on others and he's doing it because he is confident in his own righteousness. So let's move on to verse 12. He's confident in his own righteousness. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He's telling God how good he is. It's supposedly a prayer thanking God, but it's really, God, look how good I am. He's saying, I go beyond what's expected. There's no law saying fast twice a week. Yes, they were supposed to give a tenth of their income, but these Pharisees, they took it really to the limit. He's saying, I do more than the ordinary believer. God, you really ought to be pleased you've got me on your side. Do you think like that? At the start I asked, if you expect to get to heaven, why do you expect that? Did you have an answer in your head? What was your answer? The most telling thing about your answer is the first two words. Did you know that? It's the first two words. Did you begin because I? Or did you begin because God? Or because Jesus? Because God is merciful, I expect to be in heaven. Because Jesus died for sinners, I expect to be in heaven. If you think God accepts you and you're in his family, why do you think that? I hope you've got a reason, because if you haven't, what ground have you got to hope that you're in his family? And what is your reason? Is it what you have done? What you are like? What you have given? Or is it what God has done? And who God has given? Given his own son? 
Now, maybe this way I'm talking is completely foreign to you. You don't think in these terms at all. Maybe you don't think at all whether God accepts you. Maybe you don't even believe in him. But, you know, you can be a Pharisee without being religious. Because you can still look down on others and be confident in your own rightness. It may not be a religious type of rightness, but so many people are confident they're right because they keep the standards they set for themselves. So you're confident you're basically right because, well, I don't do that bad thing. I do this good thing and I'm not like those people. But instead of getting the good thing, bad thing and those people from a religious book, you get it from your own standards. Are you like that? Setting your own standards of rightness. Well, that really is a very extreme self-confidence in your rightness. Think of it this way. Imagine you take A-level physics and you write the exam and the marks, the results come back and they say you've failed the exam. No, no, you say, I haven't failed. I have A-level physics because I'm sure I got those answers right. The exam board's mark scheme must be wrong. I have A-level physics. Isn't that an extreme self-confidence? The example must be wrong. I see, I reckon I passed the standard. But isn't that what so many people are doing in life? So confident in their own rightness, they insist, I am right. My standard is the one I measure myself against. God's standard, I don't even believe in that. Have I described you? If so, Jesus says, this story is for you. Now notice this proud man, he sounds so good, he must have looked so good, and he uses religious language. Verse 6, God, I thank you. It starts so well. That could be a great prayer, couldn't it? God, I thank you, if it carried on a different way. He's praying, he's in the temple, he's supposedly talking to God, he says thank you to God. And so if as you hear this teaching from Jesus, you think, that can't be me because... I'm a long-standing member of the church. I'm a deacon, or an elder, or I serve in the church, or even I preach sermons. That reaction has shown you have exactly the attitude that Jesus is warning against. So are you like the Pharisee? Let's move on to the better person in the prayer, the tax collector. Here we have this tax collector. Now, we have a problem with this parable because as you see it, as you read it, it's fairly obvious to see the Pharisee is the respectable establishment figure and the tax collector is the outsider. And so our society has conditioned us to see the Pharisee must be the bad guy and the tax collector must be the good guy because our society is supposedly anti-respectable establishment and all for the downtrodden outsider. I don't think our society really is, but it pretends to be. Anti-establishment and all for the outsider. So we can think, yeah, it's obvious. The Pharisee's the bad guy, the tax collector's the good guy. But we need to think again about this tax collector. Yes, he is an unrespectable outsider, but not in a downtrodden sort of way, in the sort of way that a loan shark or a drugs boss or a sex offender is an outsider. He's an outsider in that sort of way. Because tax collectors then were not like, well, I hope tax collectors today aren't like this. They were corrupt. 
They were squeezed the poor for more than I ought to get out of them so that I can make some money. They were working for the enemy occupying force. So this is a bad man we have here in front of us. And he is also looking down. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's also looking down, but he's not looking down on others. His posture is looking down. He's standing at a distance. Now, posture sends a message. I'm sure we all recognise that, don't we? If I preach the rest of this sermon lounging in a chair, you're not going to think I'm very serious, am I? And I'm not showing you much respect. Posture. His posture when he's praying sends a message. What does your posture when you pray say you think about God? What does it say about how seriously you take what you're praying? Well, his posture speaks of a sense of unworthiness. He stands at a distance. He can't go up there where the Pharisee is. His posture speaks of being ashamed. He won't look up. If you won't look someone in the eye, it often speaks of shame. His posture even speaks of distress. He beat his breast. He's distressed. Why? The answer is the last word of verse 13. Last word of verse 13 He's a sinner. He's someone who comes below God's standard. He's recognising that he's not right. And he acknowledges that he can't set his own standard. God sets the standard and he's come well below it. Now, do you see yourself like this? Do you recognise that God sets the standard for life? And you can't say, no, 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 that's not reasonable. Here, I think this is the reasonable standard. Have you seen how far below his standard you come? Do you have any idea how good God is? How loving, how caring, how generous? And then, does it make you ashamed that you've disobeyed him and so often pushed him aside? Uh, Even treated him maybe as an inconvenience, getting in the way of your plan to get your life going your way? Are you like this tax collector. He's looking down, but very differently from the Pharisee. And he has confidence, but very differently from the Pharisee. He has confidence, not in himself, but in God's mercy. How can we tell that? Well, what's he doing? He's not despairing. It's not like Judas recognised he sinned and just despaired. No, he's, he's not given up hope. He's turned up to a place where he didn't fit in. And he's prayed. He's speaking to the creator of the world. And okay, he won't look up, but he, he's, he's got some hope that God will listen to him. That's quite amazing confidence. He thinks, God will listen to what I have to say. Rosaria Butterfield was the leader of the LGBT community at her university, where she was a professor, Syracuse University in the USA. And she was converted in very unusual circumstances. You can read about it in a book in our church library called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And after she was converted, in in her book, she comments on the pride marches she used to go on. And she says this, this is a quote from her, In the LGBT community, the opposite of pride is self-hatred. 
But in the Bible, the opposite of pride is faith. She says, when I was that old person, I had to have pride and we had to go on pride marches because if we didn't have that, well, it would all be self-hatred and we didn't want that. But she says, actually, in the Bible, the opposite of pride is not self-hatred. It's faith. The opposite of being like the Pharisee is not a self-hating, continually beating yourself up. It's faith in God's mercy. And it's so significant he asks for mercy. When do you ask someone for mercy? Can you remember when you last asked someone for mercy? We almost never ask anyone for mercy, do we? Because mercy is when you're in someone else's power. Mercy is when you can expect their anger. Mercy is when all you can do about it is plead for them to be kind. Now, thankfully, we're not usually in that position. But he says... That's how it is between me and God. And the word he uses here for mercy is very significant. The word means turn away your anger. God, turn away your anger. It's actually a word for covering something over. Now, put that all together and you get, this is what he's praying. He's praying, God, be kind, cover over my sin so your anger is turned away. Did you get that? God, be kind to me and cover over my sin so your anger is turned away from me. Do you think of God like that? Someone who needs our sin to be covered so his anger is turned away. If you don't, you're out of line with Jesus because Jesus says, be like this tax collector. But it's not a matter of language. Jesus isn't here saying, look, the thing you must do is make sure you use these words. What Jesus is doing is saying, look, you must make sure you have this attitude. When I was in my mid-teens and God started to work in me, so I saw my need for him to forgive me. And I started to pray about it. And I thought in terms of, I need to get the right word so God will hear my prayer. I've got to make sure I pray the right thing. And I even would get hold of these little booklets that had a prayer in the back. You know, a sinner's prayer or a seeker's prayer. I thought, if I, if I pray those words, if I can get the right words, then God's got to hear me. God's got to do it. Ah, it was a silly way to think. It was as if they were magic words. Of course, I didn't believe they were magic words. And it got me nowhere. I never had any confidence that God had answered my prayer. Until I just cried out to God in a way where the words didn't matter. It was just this cry of the heart. If you have mercy on me, all is well. If you don't, well, I've had it. What can I do? I can't remember what words I used because the words didn't matter. It was just that cry for mercy. So are you like the tax collector? Well, if you are, is there any hope for mercy from God? Let's move on thirdly to this question. What does God promise? We've had, are you like the Pharisee? Are you like the tax collector? But now, what does God promise? Jesus has told the story of these two men, and then he comments on them both. Here's Jesus' commentary on the story. Verse 14. Verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Now this is an amazing phrase. Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. What does justified mean? Well, picture in your mind a law court. And there is a man in the dock on trial accused of murder. And the witnesses get up and they make their statements. And then the lawyer for prosecution speaks. And then the lawyer for defence speaks. And then the jury go outside and discuss what's happened and come to their conclusion and back they come in and the foreman of the jury stands up. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, we have. Innocent. They've justified him. That's what justified means, to declare innocent. Justified is the opposite of condemn. Justified is God as judge legally declaring this person is free from guilt. This person is innocent accepted by me and ruled innocent by my court. Now, how can God do that? This man's admitted he's a sinner. That he comes below the standard. How can God do it? Well, because those who have called to God for mercy have the best defence lawyer there is. Those who have called to God for mercy have... This defence lawyer who stands in for all who are like the tax collector. Now, do remember this. Do you remember what the word mercy means? Do you remember that word for mercy? It means cover my sins so your anger is turned away. Remember that because the defence lawyer is Jesus. And he says, this person's sin is covered This person's sin does not count in this court because I have covered it. By my death on the cross, I have covered it. That person is counted innocent, right, good, acceptable. And so the tax collector went home justified. Now, it's an interesting phrase. Why did Jesus say he went home justified? Why does he put that bit in? He went home justified. Well, to tell you, it happened straight away. It didn't wait for him to sort things out. Come on, pay back that money you've stolen. It didn't wait for him to improve himself in some way. It wasn't a possibility that would be confirmed when he died. Well, we'll see when you died, but we're giving you the possibility. Then and there he was justified. Now that is good news. That is such good news. Because it means you could go home justified today. Think of that. Whoever you are. It doesn't have to wait till you've got older. It doesn't have to wait till you've got baptised. It's not just some future possibility. It doesn't depend on have you improved yourself. You could go home for lunch today a justified person. Forgiven, accepted by God, if you're like this tax collector. God promises to justify. But here's another thing God promises. Or maybe we should call it a warning. Verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's a promise or a warning. Everyone who exalts himself, pushes himself up, will be brought down low. Notice Jesus said, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified. The Pharisee didn't go home justified. 
His verdict on himself was, I'm a great chap. God's verdict on him was, you're a guilty sinner. Because God brings down those who push themselves up. So if you are like this Pharisee, confident in your own rightness and looking down on others, God's promise to you is, I'll humble you. He'll have his ways to show up your sinfulness and humble you. And if you don't take notice of that, if you persist in being confident in your own rightness, ultimately, God humbling you, God bringing you low, will be God bringing you right down to hell. Your church membership, or ways you've served in the church, or ways other people respect you and how highly they think of you, make zero difference to that. If you persist in being confident in your own rightness and superiority to other people, God will bring you down to hell, ultimately. And if you're thinking, no, no, that that can't be me because, and then you're listing in your mind your church involvement, you really have not got the gospel. So humble yourself and call out to God for mercy before it's too late. One more thing that God promises in this verse, the last phrase in verse 14. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. God promises for those who humble themselves, he'll lift them up. Now, no one has humbled himself more than the Son of God. The best example in the world of humbling yourself is the Son of God. He who was in very nature God, he came down and became a man, and a poor man, and a despised man, and an outsider, and a condemned man, dying on a cross, despised by everyone around, and abandoned by God. But then he was exalted. He was lifted up from the grave and he was lifted up to new life and lifted up to heaven and lifted up to the throne and crowned with honour. And you can be one with him if you humble yourself to see and admit you need him. You need him to cover over your sin. If you humble yourself to change your attitude to him and change your attitude to self. If you shift your confidence from your rightness to God's mercy because of him, Jesus, then you're made one with Jesus. You belong to him and you share in his exaltation. You share in him being lifted up. So you've been made a son of God. You're no longer a sinner. Oh yes, you fall for sin sometimes, but in God's sight you're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. You're a son of God. You've been lifted up into his family. The judge of the universe has declared you innocent, accepted, loved. So lift up your head. You're no longer in verse 13. You no longer have to stand there looking down, beating your breast with distress, ashamed to look up at a distance. You don't have to stand at a distance from God. You don't have to be in distress. You're no longer a sinner, you're a saint, a child of God. You can lift up your head and look to God. You can lift up your hands and worship God. You can lift up your eyes and speak confidently to your Father. And you can lift up your hope and look ahead that you're going to be with your Saviour.
Which are you? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Let's pause. Each of us answer that question honestly in our minds and think what our response should be. Let's pause for a moment.